This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So today is the last scientific session. This is the topic of today. Uh, before we delve into it, I, I thought maybe we can again sort of give you a little brief overview of what we've covered so far just to put everybody on the same page and add meaning to today's session. So we started off by maybe like introspecting on the brain, the concept of brain localization, how different regions of the brain do different things, and therefore when these regions are attacked by different diseases, they produce different signs and symptoms. And now you, you I hope most of you understand the difference between signs and symptoms and clinical syndromes. Um, then we sort of started with an overview of the, what we call the neurodegenerative diseases of the brain um, and then delved deeper into Alzheimer's disease because, as you learned, this is the most common form of dementia in the world. We talked about how patients that have Alzheimer's disease and other forms of neurodegenerative disease, they go through these stages of illness that start even with asymptomatic phases and then slowly progress to more clearly impaired stages of cognition, ending with what we call dementia. Uh, and you learn that dementia is a clinical state that can be caused by many different diseases or processes in the brain. And then we touched on uh, a few of the other forms of neurodegenerative diseases beyond Alzheimer's disease that are much rarer but still very important. Uh, that we talked about the state of clinical trials, the challenges in clinical trials for these diseases. And finally, we also uh, talked about you know, what is the evidence around what can we all be doing to protect our brains from this group of diseases, uh, promote brain health, and then uh, talked also about the threat of uh, pseudomedicine around boosting cognition, uh, preventing dementia, and I hope you, you had a pretty clear look, critical look at that topic. So today's session is taking a bigger picture view. We've been focusing a lot on the science and treatments, but we haven't really touched on the global impact of these group of diseases, especially Alzheimer's disease. So that's the, the theme for today. And for that, I'm, I'm going to invite my colleague, uh, Dr. Shamil. She's a, a primary care physician or a family practitioner in Jamaica. She's one of our Atlantic fellows at the Global Brain Health Institute, which you'll, you're going to learn about more later in today's session. So that's all. I just want to invite you to the podium, and you can get started. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, first, let me thank you for coming out this Tuesday evening. Unfortunately, I won't be speaking about Bob Marley or Jamaica or reggae music. But I'll talk about something just as interesting. And um, so today I'll be presenting the burden of Alzheimer's disease and related diseases in vulnerable populations. And to start off, just to give you a refresher, that Alzheimer's disease is a degenerative heart disease, or sorry, degenerative brain disease, and the most common cause of dementia, accounting for approximately 70% of patients. Dementia is not a specific disease, but rather an overall term that describes a group of symptoms. In the last few decades, with demographic aging proceeding rapidly in all regions worldwide, Interest began to focus on the prevalence of dementia, in particular in low- and um, middle-income countries. The WHO actually projects that by 2025, about three-quarters of the estimated 1.2 billion people over the age of 60 will reside in developing countries. 
and therefore by 2040, if growth of the older population continues and there are no changes in mortality or burden reduction by preventive measures, this means that 71% of the 81 million people suffering from dementia will be living in developing countries. And this is just a graphical representation of growth in numbers. Uh, you can see that high-income countries are in the lavender or purple, and uh, low-income countries in the peach, salmon, very girly colors. Um, but you can see in 35 years, the number of persons with dementia in low-income countries will double that of persons with dementia in high-income countries. So I want to start the talk, um, particularly focusing on dementia prevalence in vulnerable populations, with this quote by civil rights advocate Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. And she said, if we aren't intersectional, some of us, the, the most vulnerable, are going to fall through the cracks. And I think it's pretty pertinent and relative to where we are now, the fact that so many of us from so many different backgrounds are coming together on a Tuesday night to learn about Alzheimer's disease in vulnerable populations. So with that, let's begin. What is the prevalence of dementia in vulnerable populations? Important to note that the global estimate of uh, the prevalence of dementia is about 5 to 7%. However, there's a lack of standardization uh, procedures throughout the world, and this is actually a major limitation in the estimation of true burden of Alzheimer's disease. And standardization might not be readily achieved because of diversity of language, culture, and levels of literacy. And in some developing and low to middle income countries, more than 80% of older adults cannot read or write. Dementia in indigenous populations, to start, you should know that the term indigenous, there's actually no true definition of indigenous, but persons self-identify as such. And there are approximately 370 million people worldwide who are classified as indigenous. This makes up 5% of the world's population. Only 15 studies have been published on the prevalence and incidence of dementia in indigenous populations worldwide. And this prevalence doubles with every five and a half year increase in age from the age 60 onwards. The prevalence rate of dementia among indigenous populations is as low as 0.5% to some instances as high as 20%. In general, it should be noted that indigenous populations have lower socioeconomic income, lower education levels, a lower level of overall health, including a higher prevalence of HIV AIDS, diabetes, hypertension, alcohol abuse, obesity, cardiovascular disease, and mental health disorders, which are all risk factors for the development of dementia. I'm going to take you on a tour of the world. We're going to start in South Africa to a cross-sectional community-based study that was done in low-income, rural, Isi, Tosa-speaking community. It found that 11% of persons over the age of 65 had dementia. Moving over to northern India, India is actually undergoing a rapid demographic change um, along with a fast-paced social restructuring. It's home to 76 million people over the age of 60, and it's actually estimated that 1.5 million people are affected by dementia in India currently, 
and this is likely to increase by 300% over the next four decades. Several community-based urban and rural studies on dementia from different parts of India documented varying rates from 1% to 3.4% for persons above the age of 60. Moving over to rural Bangladesh, where a population-based cross-sectional study found an overall prevalence of questionable and definite dementia of 11% and roughly 4% in persons over the age of 60. What should be noted about this study in particular is that prevalence estimates are slightly lower than the worldwide estimates, which I said was 5 to 7%. But this could be due to the fact that when this study was conducted, the life expectancy in rural Bangladesh was no more than 64 years. So that could have affected. Moving over to another indigenous population, Aboriginal Australians. They comprise 3% of the Australian population and have some of the worst life expectancy and health outcomes of indigenous cultures within developed nations. Approximately 13% over the age of 60 in urban regions have dementia, and this is actually three times greater than the general population. The prevalence and incidence of dementia in remote and rural Aboriginal communities is among the highest in the world and especially high in younger age groups. Moving over to the Americas, Latin America, the total number of persons over the age of 60 in both Latin America and the Caribbean in the year 2000 was 41 million, and a further 57 million is estimated to join the population by 2025. It's not too far from now. A collaborative study between six Latin American countries, namely Uruguay, Chile, Brazil, Colombia, and Peru, found the prevalence rate was about 7%. And in terms of gender, the, these Latin American studies depicted higher rates of dementia in both genders in the age group 65 to 69 and higher prevalence of dementia in women in the age group 70 to 74. This table just shows the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia in some developing countries. Don't worry, I'm going to zoom in. And... Uh, in South Korea, the prevalence of all dementia types is about 10%. For Alzheimer's, it's 5%. In Latin America, we see Cuba with all dementia prevalence of 8.2%. And for Alzheimer's disease, 5%. Argentina, 11%. And Chile and Colombia, 43 and 1.8%, respectively. But what's interesting to know is that it's not that the prevalence of dementia in Chile and Colombia is so much lower than the world. It's just that in least developed countries, they're less likely to report cognitive decline and social impairment, suggesting that there's an underestimation of prevalence in these countries. Now, in speaking about dementia prevalence or the prevalence of Alzheimer's disease in vulnerable populations, we tend to think of developing countries and low to middle income countries, but also in North America, there are vulnerable populations. And the Chicago Health and Aging Project, um, which was a longitudinal population-based cohort of adults, 60% who self-identified as black and 40% who self-identified as white, living in a geographically defined region in the south side of Chicago, 
um, found some interesting prevalence rates among black Americans. Black participants performed worse on average on cognitive tests and were more likely to have prevalent Alzheimer's disease than their white participants at baseline. They were also at a higher risk of incident Alzheimer's disease. By contrast, the rate of cognitive decline among blacks differed little from or was slightly lower than the rate among white Americans. These results suggest that persistent racial differences in cognitive level, rather than differences in cognitive decline due to age, are likely to underlie the higher risk of incident Alzheimer's disease among black Americans. And the findings could reflect differences in cognitive reserve caused by racial disparities over the lifespan in education, both in the amount and in the quality, access to material and social services, exposure to discrimination, and exposure to neurotoxicants. Next section, I'm going to talk about the burden of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias on the, the economic and social cost. And I found this quote from an American author, um, which I thought was very poignant to this topic. She said, I gave three years of my life to take care of my dying mother who had Alzheimer's disease. Being there for her every need for three years might have looked codependent, but it wasn't because it was what I wanted to do. And I think a lot of caregivers of persons living with dementia share this sentiment. So to understand the social and economic costs of dementia around the world, we should know that a proper understanding of the societal costs of dementia and how they affect families, health and social services, and governments is fundamental to raising awareness, achieving proper prioritization, and focusing efforts to improve the lives of people with dementia and their caregivers. The cost of dementia is distributed unevenly. Um, just focus on this slide for a minute. Um, we know that 50 million people worldwide have dementia and that this number will double every 20 years. It costs about $818 billion and the projected troubling of this figure would mean that 3% of the world's GDP needs to be dedicated to dementia care. It's the fifth leading cause of death and another way of looking at it is if dementia care was a country, it would be the world's 18th largest economy between Poland and Saudi Arabia. And if it were a company, it would be the world's largest annual revenue exceeding Apple, Google, Walmart, and ExxonMobil. I know, right? <laughs> So examining the social cost of dementia, what's different between high-income countries such as North America and low-to-middle-income countries is that in developing countries, for people with dementia, the state does not provide long-term care. Consequently, the family, particularly patients' offspring, play a vital part in many developing countries. Traditional family and kinship structures are under threat from demographic, social, economic changes that accompany economic development and globalization. 
An estimate of the worldwide cost of dementia used an average of 1.6 hours of informal personal care per day for all people with dementia. Living with children is a norm, and three-generation households in developing countries, including children under the age of 16, are common. Children can provide food, shelter, personal care, and income for their parents through cash transfers, particularly important in India, the Dominican Republic, rural Peru, Mexico, and China because of very low pension coverage. And I can tell you for a fact that in Jamaica, the average pension is $2,000 a month, which averages out to be 18 U.S. dollars a month. Nevertheless, around 37% of people live alone or with a spouse only, and hence can be considered vulnerable. In speaking about the social cost of dementia and Alzheimer's disease, you have to look at caregiver burden. And caregiver burden refers to the overall pressure of caregiving encompassing physical, psychological, social, and financial strains. In East Asian countries, where there's a strong cultural expectation that children take care of their parents later in life, studies have shown that the degree of filial obligation is generally higher than in Western countries. Studies have shown that caregivers tend to experience physical and psychological stress, they are at higher risk of depression, anxiety, and an increase in the risk for physical ailments such as poor immune function and chronic medical conditions. And what's interesting to know about uh, caregiver burden and the changing uh, face of caregivers is that the education of women, especially in um, developing countries, the education of women and their increasing participation in the workforce which is generally seen as a positive thing, tends to reduce their availability to provide caregiving and also their willingness to do so. Populations are also increasing, uh, increasingly mobile because of education, cheap travel, and flexible labor markets, and children are therefore more than likely migrating to cities and abroad, leaving older people alone. And also, as a... A last bit, the declining fertility is the last stage of the demographic transition, leaving increasing numbers of older people lacking family support. Now, as it relates to patient predictors for caregiver burden, the lower the patient's daily functioning, the higher the caregiver's burden. The more frequent and severe the patient's behavioral symptoms, the higher the burden. And the higher the sense of obligation, the greater the burden. This corroborates the idea that a stronger sense of obligation by children puts pressure on the caregiver and increases the strain of caregiving. Now, a question I asked when I was doing research for this topic was, is there a difference in the burden that one may face if they're the caregiver for someone with Alzheimer's disease versus other types of dementia? And a study showed that vascular dementia patients in early stages imposed a greater burden on relatives than did patients with Alzheimer's disease. In fact, 
about 29 to 45% of patients with vascular dementia were under the care of a physician because of illnesses such as hypertension, heart disease, stroke, and diabetes versus persons who have Alzheimer's disease who may or may not have had these underlying conditions. In the late stages, however, relatives of Alzheimer's disease patients experienced more caregiver burden than those of vascular dementia patients. And anecdotally, caregiver burden varies according to the dementia type during early stages of the disease, such as frontotemporal dementia, where persons may have more behavioral issues, versus your Alzheimer's disease. But that caregiver burden tends to homogenize in the late stages of the illness. Now we're going to explore the economic cost of dementia around the world. I'll be throwing out a couple numbers, but I'll guide you along. Dementia imposes huge societal economic burden, but through direct and indirect means. And evidence is just becoming, or just beginning to emerge of the extent of the economic burden in middle and low income countries. Unpaid formal care, um, I'm sorry, the care input by family members, friends, and others has an important influence on the societal cost of dementia, since it's a producer of an extensive amount of unpaid informal care. And translating the contribution into costs is not straightforward. Quantifying a caregiver's time can be rather problematic. The inputs most commonly assessed are their assistance with basic activities of daily living. This includes eating, dressing, bathing. Assistance with instrumental activities of daily living, such as your finances and your shopping. Supervision and management of behavioral symptoms and harm prevention. Now data on direct costs and the distribution between direct and, med, uh, direct and social care costs are available for 21 countries, which is great. This comprises 49% of the worldwide dementia population. And for ease of explanation, direct medical costs include hospital care, medications, and visits to clinics, whereas your direct social care costs are community services, such as home care, food supply, transportation, and residential or nursing home care. Now, table one shows the aggregated cost types as percentages of total costs in the different World Bank income regions. Basically, this is just how much does dementia cost in your low-income and your high-income countries. And we can see that for high-income countries, the cost of informal care, which is 40%, and the direct costs of social care, which is 45%, contribute roughly the same proportion to the total cost. Whereas the proportion, as we can see here, the proportion um, of direct medical costs is significantly lower than that for your social care costs. It speaks to caregiver burden. Next is a table that shows the cost per person with dementia, again, by income region. In low and low to middle income countries, direct, uh, so direct social care costs are small at 124 and 380. This is um, millions. Uh, versus your informal care costs 
which are significantly higher than your direct social care costs. And to note, in your high-income countries, the total cost per person with dementia is 38 times higher than in your low-income countries, and the direct cost of social care, as you can see, is 120 times higher than in your low-income countries. What's interesting to note about this is that Again, the proportion of your informal care costs and your direct social costs are roughly the same in your high-income countries, whereas you can see the expenditure for your informal care costs far outweigh those for your social care costs. So again, speaking to caregiver burden for persons who are not being paid. It's a lot of numbers. But this table just shows the uh, cost per capita of dementia um, in billions by the WHO, the World Health Organization, by Global Burden of Disease Region. And again, we're just showing the difference between your low-income countries at 3.1 billion to your high-income countries, such as Western Europe and North America, at 32 billion. Essentially, this is the same dementia costs a lot. Table four shows a contribution of each World Bank income region to the global prevalence of dementia and to the global costs. And about 70% of the global societal costs of dementia occur in your high-income countries, again, your Western Europe and your North America. And 89% of total costs are incurred by these countries. However, the minority of people with dementia live in high-income countries at just 46%. 39% of people with dementia live in middle-income countries, whereas the cost that they contribute or that they incur is just roughly, I'm sorry, roughly 10% in total. So high-income countries cost a lot, less people with dementia. The current inequitable distribution in dementia costs among regions will have implications for future trends. And this figure shows the projected increase in persons with dementia and the regions in the world in which they'll be located. And as you can see, the black boxes represent the number of persons with dementia. The light gray box is current projections or current estimates at 2015. The dark blue is for projections for 2030. And the dark gray box, you can see projections for 2050. And essentially, the, mo the majority of people with dementia will be residing in your low-income, low-to-middle-income countries. In South America, this will be increased by 285% by 2050. And in continental Africa, this will be increased by 295%. Com this is very different from North America, which is projected to increase by 144% in 2050, and Western Europe at 78%. So in doing all of this, there are a lot of numbers and a lot of data, but I wanted to know how did dementia measure up to other chronic illnesses. And it's difficult to compare the estimates of global societal costs for dementia with those of other conditions because few studies have been done. 
However, there was a study done in the United Kingdom that focused on the economic burden of dementia and other chronic diseases and sought to compare like-for-like like disease costs with national expenditure on research. And you can see the national expenditure is $48 billion. For dementia, that accounted for $23 billion. Cancer, $12 billion. Heart disease, 8 and stroke, $5 billion. The reported estimated annual societal costs of dementia, the annual per capita costs were estimated at £27,000 for dementia, about £6,000 for cancer, £3,500 for heart disease, and £4,700 for stroke. And despite these astronomical figures, investment in research did not match the relative burden of the different chronic diseases. For every million pounds that was spent in care costs arising from the disease, you can see that cancer got 129,000 pounds, heart disease and stroke collectively 73,000 pounds, but dementia only received on average 4,800 pounds per every per million that was spent on um, care costs. So it's a little bit unequal, to say the least. So that leads us into dementia research and equity, or rather, the inequitable research on dementia. And only 10% of studies on dementia are conducted in developing countries. And because of this, the World Health Organization actually initiated a dementia research prioritization exercise, and they entrusted an advisor group of internationally recognized experts and stakeholders in the specialty of dementia to lead the development of the scope, methods, and implementation of the exercise. And essentially what they did was they assessed certain fields of research on the basis of potential for success, equity, burden reduction, potential for conceptual breakthrough, and translation. And overall, the scores varied substantially. For instance, when considering ranking in the burden of, uh, the effect on burden reduction, the scores were highest for the overarching themes of uh, quality of care with dementia and also delivery of care. Whereas for the criteria of potential for conceptual breakthrough, we can see that physiology and progression of normal aging was ranked higher or given more priority. For the equity criterion, the highest scores were for the overlapping domains of public awareness, which is here in white, and for quality of care for people with dementia, delivery of care for services, and prevention, identification, and reduction of risk. And at the end of the policy, what they found, the policy review, what they found was that equity was actually judged to be the least important of the five scoring criteria, which is sad. Um, and many researchers actually stated that many research avenues are unlikely to benefit those with or at risk of dementia and their families in an, in, in an equitable manner. So for all the research that is being done on dementia, only 10% of them have been done in low to middle income countries. And even of that number, the people who probably would benefit the most will probably 
not likely benefit. But it's not all doom and gloom. I want to leave you with this quote from James Baldwin, who said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I think we're off to a good start with all of us being here today. And policymakers are urged to promptly tackle the persistent, remarkable imbalance between the allocation of research funding and resources and the unaddressed needs of the majority of those who live with dementia, particularly in low- to middle-income countries where international partnerships should be established to raise awareness of dementia and improve the health and social systems responsiveness. And that is where the Atlantic Fellowship comes in. Thank you, everyone, for your time. And if you have any questions. Okay, well, thank you so much for that great lecture. I am excited about the panel we have today. Um, as usual, I'll just let them introduce themselves very briefly, and then I'll open up with a few questions for the panel, and then I'll open up for questions with you, for you guys. So maybe we can start with you, Dr. Chodos. Sure. I'm Anna Chodos. I'm a geriatrician here at UCSF, and I practice at San Francisco General, where we also have a dementia clinic. Hi, I'm Lingani. I'm a clinical neuropsychologist, and I'm from Botswana. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Arnold Munoz. I'm a geriatrician from Mexico, and I'm currently a Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at uh, the Global Brain Health Institute here at uh, UCSF. And, and so is she. <laughs> uh, I'm Victor Valcor. I'm a geriatrician in the Department of Neurology, um, a dementia specialist, and um, I run the Global Brain Health Institute and the Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health Program. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks for those brief introductions. Maybe I can start with you, Dr. Valcor, and if you can provide us with a sort of a snapshot of GBHI, its history, its mission, and, and what do you see uh, for GBHI in the upcoming future? I, I think surrounded by Atlantic Fellows, I'm probably not the best person to answer this. <laughs> um, you can see, you've seen what we're trying to do. So the, the Global Brain Health Institute was established in 2015. We're in our third year. We're training people for 12 months at two sites, one at UCSF here, and the second site is in Dublin, where I'm heading tomorrow. Uh, we have trained 86 fellows from 25 countries. Um, we have 34 fellows coming in next year, and it'll extend our reach to 37 countries. Uh, Dr. Chodos is one of our faculty as well, and so is Dr. Lanata. Um, we're international, as you can tell. We're also interprofessional. So you see clinicians here, largely. But we have a comedian coming next week. He is an Atlantic fellow. Um, we have a lawyer. We have uh, uh, health economists. We have policy people. We have uh, writers. Uh, we have uh, fiddlers. We have people who are engaged in becoming next generation of leaders to change the narrative around dementia. Uh, a, a public um, document published two years, two years ago in Lancet told us that a third of dementias are preventable. Uh, and so what we need is a public health approach to awareness, decreasing stigma, addressing these preventable factors. And because most of dementia will be occurring in countries that are aging rapidly, largely low- and middle-income countries, this has to be an international effort. So we've been fortunate enough 
to receive funding to hopefully train 600 leaders in the next 15 years on an international scale to try to address this growing challenge and meet the, uh, the expectations of reducing the prevalence of dementia through these public health strategies. Fantastic. Great, great introduction to GBHI. And maybe for Arnold and Lingani, if you can, as, as fellows of the program, maybe you can share some of your experiences through the program and how, how they've changed your, your focus of things and what do you hope to do when you return uh, back home? <laughs> um, well, the focus of my career, I mean, GBHI has impacted my career in so many ways that I did not expect. Um, first of all, um, particularly the training that I was able to experience in the last two years as a fellow, uh, coming from a developing country and considering Latin America, I mean, it's, it's, it's really difficult and challenging for uh, specialists, and not only in medicine but in science, uh, to be able to uh, come to a place like this and learn and experience and spend time with so much valuable people and persons that are so committed and that inspire you not only through their knowledge but also through their work and all the things that they are doing. So the training is something that is uh, something that I, I really appreciate, and getting to know the people because it's it's mainly all about the people, really. Uh, so so wonderful people that are part of GBHI. Um, another thing I would add is the opportunity of networking. Uh, as Dr. Balkulda already stated, uh, this is an uh, an international group, an interdisciplinary and interprofessional. So the opportunity to meet so many people uh, through our fellowships and build these connections all around the world to collaborate in ways uh, that I really didn't imagine would be possible, could be possible uh, just by working in, uh, back in Mexico. And, but now uh, networking has allowed, has opened so much opportunities. Um, mm. They're just great experience. And finally, I would say that uh, the support that GBHI brings to us through mentoring and through all of these uh, wonderful connections, I think it's something that also has impacted very positively uh, my career uh, being here in GBHI. Great. Uh, similarly to what Analda has said, uh, GBHI has, it has had a real positive impact on my career. I feel like... Um, Having been a GBHI, it's really provided a springboard for my career. I feel like the experience at GBHI has really put me in a space where I can have real impact. I am, as I mentioned before, I'm from Botswana and I'm the only neuropsychologist in Botswana. So without the experience of GBHI, I probably would have continued to do my work as a neuropsychologist. But being the only one in a country which has about... Um, over two million people, obviously there'd be many people who go unseen who need neuropsychological services, right? So I feel that uh, having been a GBHI, I've been provided with the space to really think about ways in which I can increase service provision. For example, through conversations with um, colleagues and mentors at GBHI, I've started to think about uh, ways we can increase the human capacity. So I'm starting to think about having a master's program for for neuropsychology. Being the only, um, we've got one university in the country and at that university we don't have a graduate program. 
So one of my priorities is to start a training program so that we can have more human capacity in, um, in neuropsychology. <coughs> Excuse me. And then the other thing that has been really magical, I would say, about GBHI has been the multidisciplinary focus and the multidisciplinary nature of the, um, of the fellowship. I've been in a space where I have seen the value of being able to talk to people who are outside my area of expertise. Um, GBHI has really illuminated the importance of, for example, knowing the correct conversations to have with, to have with policymakers, um, learning about health economics, for example, learning about grant writing. I think these are all really important um, skills and things that I've learned to be able to make an impact because as just a neuropsychologist, it will be difficult to make a bigger impact, but with a multidisciplinary approach, we'd be able to have more impact, I think. Fantastic. Can, can you say uh, maybe a few words about how does Botswana compare to other African nations in terms of resources and you know the, the state of dementia sure. care? And sure. So Botswana is a um, it's a middle income country. We um, so most of our resources have we've been very fortunate in that over the last fifty years we were able we discovered diamonds in the country. And this, uh, this discovery of diamonds have seen us move from one of the poorest countries in Africa to being a middle-income country. So we have resources, and these resources have been invested in healthcare. However, the problem is that um, our healthcare system, the focus of our healthcare system, for example, is on acute diseases, and it's on communicable diseases such as HIV, tuberculosis, and malaria. So there's very little, the, the healthcare system has, does not focus on dementia, for example. Just to give you an example, we have, um, so at the apex of our healthcare system, we have two tertiary hospitals. And at these tertiary hospitals, we only have one neurologist working in either hospital. So we've only got two neurologists in the country. We don't have any um, geriatricians, for example. Uh, no neuropsychologists working in the public system. So as you can imagine, with, with this backdrop of a lack of specialists, it's um, the assessment and the management of neurodegenerative diseases is very limited. Um, as I said, we're, we're fortunate enough to have you know, a healthcare system that is reasonably well-funded, although the focus is on acute diseases. But if you compare us, for example, to... Um, Okay, let me say, so in Botswana, everybody has access to health care in the sense that most people will, will be within about a five-mile walking distance to the nearest health facility, whereas in a place like Zimbabwe, it's not uncommon for people to walk for up to 20 or 30 miles to get to their nearest health care facility. So although we're better funded... Um, uh, we don't provide services as, as such for neurodegenerative conditions, but we are better off than mm. countries such as um, Zimbabwe. And then you heard before in the lecture that um, there's not very much research happening in developing countries, but places like um, South Africa and Nigeria and Egypt have been relatively a bit more fortunate in that there's been some research activity in those areas. And given the little bit of research activity, it has meant that um, care systems have been 
I'd say documented, so that it's been documented what we can do for people with dementia. Um, for example, in South Africa, they have, um, they have care homes for frail, um, frail elderly people who are also destitute. However, these homes, these frail people homes, they don't necessarily cater for people with dementia. Um, there are NGOs, non-government organizations, who do cater for dementia. However, to be able to, to be um, eligible for these services, you need to, to be assessed and families need to pay a certain amount. There's also private services, but the majority of South Africans don't actually, they can't afford the, mm. the private dementia services that are available. Well, thank you for that. Um, and maybe to move on to Dr. Choros, uh, my question for her, I think, I wish I could say that San Francisco had ta has completely taken care of all their healthcare disparities, but that's, that's not the case. Um, and, and that is true of dementia care, or more broadly, uh, care for people who have cognitive impairment just within the city. Um, the disparities are, are pretty, pretty marked. Um, and I'm always surprised, you know, always shocked, you know, that uh, the San Francisco General Hospital, which is the primary hospital and the network, right, that serves the most vulnerable communities in, in San Francisco, up to how long ago was the GNCC founded? 2013. So up to 2013, there was no clinic that was sort of exclusively dedicated to assess, treat, and manage people that had cognitive impairment, um, which is pretty, I think it's pretty shocking to me. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more as to, you know, the history of the GNCC, uh, what you see for the future. This is the Geriatrics Neurology Cognitive Clinic. And if you have to envision, like, what is the... The, uh, what needs to happen to the city, you know, for us to really say that we are providing equitable care in the city, what would that look like? Yeah, I'm so pleased to have this opportunity, for, first of all, to be part of this panel and to be part of a larger conversation about equity and dementia care. So I'm a geriatrician and a primary care doctor most of the time. And part of that has been to develop a dementia clinic at San Francisco General Hospital, but we serve all the safety net primary care clinics, of which there are 12. And we call our clinic geriatrics, neurology. So Dr. Lenata is also part of our clinic and sees patients there with me and the rest of our team. So it should really be called geriatrics, neurology, neuropsychology, pharmacy, social work, <laughs> nursing. Um, so we really, our goal is certainly an interprofessional assessment of older adults for the most part, and by older we mean over 50 for the most part, um, with cognitive complaints. And when I started it, I was a fellow in geriatrics, and I had done my training at San Francisco General Hospital Primary Care Clinics, and there wasn't anywhere to send a patient that had a cognitive issue. So although that, that's mis, that's I'm mis, misrepresenting things a little bit, I could pick a few things. I could pick neuropsychology, so that means I would have some sort of sense of a specific battery of tests that would help us better understand that person's um, status. Or I could pick neurology, which of course has extensive experience in all neurologic conditions. However, it was a general neurology clinic. So the thing that you see from the Memory and Aging Center and the Global Brain Health Initiative is really that these, there is a real specialty and a focus on neurodegenerative brain diseases, which are different than, you know, a very complex set of diseases as you have learned. And that specialist wasn't there. 
So with the incredible enthusiasm of another neurologist, Dr. Alexandra Nelson at the Memory and Aging Center, who usually specializes in Huntington's disease and uh, Parkinson's disease and things like that, we started a volunteer service um, and got our neuropsychology team on board. And so this took what for most patients was a, either six to eight month waiting process for neuropsychology or four, roughly four months waiting for neurology um, to a group visit where they would see all of us and get a sense of what we thought was going on that day. Um, and then four years later, we were very fortunate to get funding from GBHI to build out that model to include all those other team members. And we're still working on getting our solid footing and funding underneath us. But I think our motivation was really one, yes, it seems totally preposterous that within your own healthcare system where you've relied for all your primary care and all your other specialty care, that one of the most prevalent diseases in older people did not have a place to go. And we are taking care of vulnerable people. And so some of the um, wonderful presentation comments that, that Dr. McFarland had were that, you know, in vulnerable populations, you know, that's a large umbrella of things potentially, but dementia risk is higher. So we have a lot of people who have TBI for multiple reasons. Long history of That's substance traumatic use. brain injury. Sorry, traumatic brain injury, which is a risk factor. Longer history of serious mental illness, like serious depression, is a risk factor. Um, and then lower education. So this idea that maybe there's not cognitive decline happening faster, but that there's, they're starting at a lower cognitive baseline, and that's a risk factor. So all of these things taken together meant that we had a higher risk population and fewer services than some of, like, CPMC has the, the Dolby Brain Center, and people who are in the UCSF network or coming from other places could go to memory and aging. We did occasionally get some patients over there, but again, we really wanted something to serve our patients. And the reason for that is we have extensive resources available to us that are culturally competent, language competent, and our neuropsychologists particularly also have developed a lot of expertise in many different populations. So I keep thinking when I'm looking at the maps that Dr. McFarland was presenting of, about the fact that we have people literally coming from those countries to now living in San Francisco, and we're trying to assess them as if they're their background is the same as you know the tests that we have to test them with, with which were created in Montreal or created in um, New York or something like that. So we've, over the course of a few years now, developed our own series of tests for a Chinese-speaking patient, a Spanish-speaking population uh, patient, an English-speaking patient, and then yes, we have a massive category of others, other languages, and we're working on it. Um, but we do feel like taking into account the cultural background, the educational background, um, even within the same country, if that person's from a rural or an urban center, makes, gives you a better sense of really what is going on than a test that you're really forcing into a situation it wasn't meant to be in, or an assessment that doesn't account for all of that. And I think the thing that I'm still acutely aware of is um, we are just you know, at the tip of the iceberg stage, and we're really managing to get to the people who either have the best advocates or, frankly, have fallen the farthest. And now they're in our system in a way that many people, case managers, you know, complex care nurses who are responsible for them and the care that they're getting, a respite center, so people who are not, don't have any housing who really can't go back to the street because they're too ill. We have something called a respite center. They're one of our best customers. So 
the respite center is trying to figure out how to help people. Um, some of the primary care doctors are sort of most engaged with us and are really um, engaging their patients to come see us. But we know there's a lot of people who aren't coming to see us. And we really want to be able to bridge that gap. And I think the biggest gaps we're seeing still are just access, basic understanding of some of the way these people's symptoms are presenting might be a cognitive problem and not a mental health problem or not a language barrier, for example. Um, and then the other one is really this overlap of mental illness and cognitive health in our population and trying to actually, as if we could fit more people into one room, sometimes it is tough, but get like a psychiatrist in there too or somebody who has mental health expertise because we are seeing a lot of that overlap, a tremendous amount. Um, and I, at this point, um, really can't describe a population for whom it's not worth screening for PTSD. We have a tremendous prevalence of PTSD in our population and it, it, it's a big factor in what goes into thinking about how our patients are presenting to us, what symptoms they're having, and why it may look like a dementia but is really is potentially a, a PTSD issue. Um, so this integration of disciplines, this integration of social services, integration of cultural competency and language competency into the assessment, these are all things we're really trying to work hard on. And a collaboration with GBHI and the amazing expertise that the fellows are bringing from their home countries, of which we are seeing, you know, from which we are seeing many people, is invaluable because we really learn so much. So we get, they get to rotate with us, thankfully. Great. Fantastic. Thanks, everyone, for your comments. Um, and I think we can start asking, opening for questions, uh, if anybody has any questions. So we have to wrap things up at 8.30, is what I'm told, because the doors may close. Yes. Um, thank you so much for bringing an awareness that I hadn't really considered, that it's a global issue. So I really appreciate that. Um, one of the things that struck me is you talked about educational levels. And um, I was wondering, uh, is there a way to develop um, training for people with dementia to have better flexible re flexible thinking or responses? So we've taught people one plus one equals two, you know, and that's an educational level. But actually, if you think about it from a design perspective, one plus one equals three, because there's always more than just the two parts. There's, a, there's the unknown. So I was just wondering if you use design thinking with people with dementia, does it help in that kind of brain flexibility? If we have neuroplasticity, does it still exist as we get dementia? And can we think about ways people can learn? Mm -hmm. Is the less education sort of the less flexible problem solving we've been trained in? Maybe, I don't know. So if I can summarize the question, it would be if um, once a person has a neurodegenerative disease that may be at a dementia stage or earlier, is there anything, anything of value that sort of some form of cognitive stimulation can add to like increasing plasticity and maybe, okay, anybody want to take that question? Well, there are, there are two important pieces to what uh, is being asked, and, and I think uh, 
You know, we commonly will recommend that people stay as cognitively active as they, as they can. We, we think that there are protective factors with that. Um, I usually tell patients that doesn't mean go home and do Sudoku if you hate doing Sudoku. Um, you don't have to sit in front of a computer and do a computer game. Um, but you can, if you like playing cards, you should play cards. More social interaction, you should say socially engaged. And the, the, the science around that is probably not as strong as it is for other things, but it's, it's certainly something that we recommend. There's a flip side to that, though, that needs to be um, thought of. Uh, well, two pieces. One is when you talk about dementia, you talk about a lot of different things. And particularly around somebody who has Alzheimer's disease, there's often a narrative that you can, you can get the person to do better at something if you just teach them over and over and over. And that's a dangerous narrative for somebody who's having difficulty making memories um, because it probably will make the problem worse. It'll increase anger. It'll increase anxiety. And the disease really does not allow somebody to relearn things or to learn things new. So there's a little bit of a, a risk in kind of this blanket statement that if I work really, really hard, I will make this person better. So I, I try to make sure that that's not a narrative that we're sharing. The education around it, understanding it's the disease, there are certain things that they will not be able to do, and, and trying to force a teaching around that is, is, can be dangerous. Uh, so I think that I would I think about it in two different ways. The, the opportunity is really probably around low literacy before the disease begins. And so the data on if you have a good education in early life, you have, there's pretty good data that you will be less likely to have the clinical manifestations of dementia in late life. And so th- these have been done in beautiful studies around, believe it or not, nuns uh, who you could go back. Mother Superior said we can, you can have all the brains. And so we knew who had Alzheimer's disease and not and went back to the essays they wrote when they entered the convent. And based on the complexity of that, you could tell the risk for developing dementia. So we think there's good evidence for early life treatment, um, but we don't know about late life literacy. So around the world, many, many people are illiterate. And can you train literacy at 60 years of age to protect? Uh, it's a topic that one of our fellows is working on. I think that's a big opportunity, is um, even, even within this audience, once you retire, staying cognitively active staying cognitively engaged is probably protective. Um, so those are the opportunities, I would say. Great. Yes, question right here in the front. The picture that's presented is very, very grim. And, um, you know, I'm sitting here and the numbers are just horrendous. Uh, there's hope, obviously, the GBHI, but I mean, 300 people going out into the world. What, do you guys have hope? I mean, seriously? So the the comment slash question is around um, hope and uh, given so given how grim the the future looks statistically, um, how do we hold on to hope? And anybody want to take that question? <laughs> I think I think uh, yeah. I'm just gonna my piece on it. I think that there is hope. There is hope at least. I mean, as a fellows, we have like this positive attitude towards. We can make a change happen. I mean, um, small contributions eventually will lead up to you know to a bigger effect. And there's so much people beyond GBHI that's also interested in this. And as I said before, the opportunities to meet other people and to contri- to uh, build ways to collaborate and to share and inspire uh, through you know um, getting to talk about 
what our current problems are, our local problems, and then uh, discover that we're not so different from other countries that are experiencing the same the same problems. And the ways that we can engage in in just collaboration that can actually help do something to improve the way that we care and we treat and we diagnose and we help people that are living with dementia worldwide. I think that there is hope. Uh, of course, it's, uh, it's a big challenge, uh, but big challenges uh, demand big efforts, and so there's people who are willing to you know, go up to the task. So, yeah, I think there, there's hope, at least from my point of view. And I was just going to add a slight comment to that, and I think the biggest hope would be um, the fact that we know that some of the preventable risk factors we can do something about. So if we target that, things like physical exercise and eating a good diet, social um, social interactions, and so forth. So I think this this would be a, you know the environment that we can target for hope against dementia. Just something that you you mentioned um, uh, struck a, a, a chord with me. In Mexico, we have a fellow who works in the ER, and if you have a stroke in Mexico, um, you are likely to get to a hospital. I think he said three percent of the time in time to get treatment for the stroke. And if you get to the hospital, about three percent of people actually get the treatment. So there's a huge gap, and stroke is uh, really one of the leading factors for developing dementia. If you have a stroke, your risk goes up tremendously. So in a lot of the regions, there are great opportunities, huge opportunities to have impact with a very powerful leader who has the drive to change networks and systems within country. And I think we're, we hear about these opportunities with our fellows with some frequency. So I, I think that gives me hope. I think for me, uh, there certainly is reason to hope. So maybe we can't prevent all, um, all people getting dementia who are going to get dementia. And I think you're also seeing that there's a really broad approach to prevention and sort of reducing the number of people who get dementia. But I would say hope for me is when I see someone who does have dementia, who's getting the right support, who has a good quality of life, who has a caregiver who feels supported and has um, skills. And that is doable. That is very doable. And I think part of the change will be people who don't have dementia yet, because people who do often, and caregivers who are really in the thick of it, often have a lot on their plates or aren't advocating well for themselves. But it's the rest of us advocating for better care for those people, knowing that it may be us one day as well, but also because it's, you know, it's the right thing to do and it's a, it's a better society to live in. But there, it, it's not a necessarily something terrible. It's the way a lot of people have to muddle through it that is really terrible. So that for me is hope. I mean, I have a lot of people I work with who are doing very well, and yes, they have dementia, but you know, that, that is one thing I hope for. And along these lines, I also sometimes think that, you know, given the magnitude of, of, of the impact of these group of diseases, I think it's almost like it's going to push us at a worldwide level to really like think 
of our brains in a very different way. I don't know how to put this. Uh, you know, the impact of dementia at a societal world level is huge, but at an individual level is also huge. And, um, and that's going to put a, a, a new sort of, in my opinion, I think uh, in, the, in the long run, a new focus on the brain, which may jumpstart a movement around brain health more broadly uh, in the setting of, of the world that we live in right now that is so tightly interconnected through social media and technology that could exponentially cause changes for the better, I think, I hope, you know, uh, through awareness. So that's why one of the missions of GBHI is... Is just awareness, you know, educating, making people aware of this. I mean, think of, and I'm thinking of nations and regions of the world where somebody has, you know, the clinical symptoms of one of these neurodegenerative diseases, and that society will contextualize that as, I mean, frankly, demonic possession, right? So we got to work on that um, and in order to start to make uh, really uh, powerful changes. Any other question? Yes, sir, in the middle, back. Yeah, uh, this is a question for Dr. Um, Farling. Um, I was really um, resonated with her, you know, the burden of these diseases on uh, the caregiver, the family caregivers. And I'm just wondering, have you have any, did you talk a little bit about how China, which is relatively wealthy country and have a very strong ethic of the obligation of offspring to care for their, you know, uh, ailing, aging uh, relatives. How is China dealing with this, the burden of the caregivers, the, the sons, the daughters who are in that culture are expected to uh, assume most of the burden so the question is, how is China dealing with caregiver burden? Uh, anybody want to? You have any comments around that? I don't know. Um, so the, there's a, a Confucian philosophy called filial piety that speaks to this filial obligation where children or, or the offspring take care of their parents, and it's um, not just. It's, it's traditionally Asian, but coming from the Caribbean, we were also raised that way. Um, it's, I think the caregivers are, 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 so, are sort of like the, the, the silent patient in the sense that you know the person who has Alzheimer's, you know the person who has dementia, they have these symptoms, but to, to look at the caregiver, they're silently suffering most of the time because they're not the ones suffering from the illness. And so they, as I mentioned, they deal with anxiety and depression and chronic medical illnesses. And in Asian countries, and I think globally, yes, traditionally women took care of the parents. Even if it was your husband's parents, you would still take care of them. But now more women are entering the workforce which is, as I mentioned, great, but then it, it sort of leaves the void that, well, then who takes care of these parents? So n more studies are, are being conducted now on caregiver burden and how do we address this issue and that it shouldn't just be an issue for young girls 
growing up that this is what you're supposed to do. But how do we, as a society, how do we care for our persons living with dementia and Alzheimer's disease to take the burden off of the family? Not necessarily just China. It, it doesn't really have to do with the wealth of a country when it comes to informal caregiving. As um, I don't know if you remember from some of the tables, that high-income or low-income countries, the caregiver, the informal care was vastly different from your the, the direct social care costs. So it's a, it's a balance that we're all going to have to try to figure out. Um, I don't have any answers. As a, as a woman and as a, as a child, I am acutely aware, and again, from the culture that I grew up in, I'm acutely aware that I am going to have to take care of my parents when they get to that stage. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of us have to deal with um, on a daily basis. But in terms of scientific answers, we're not there yet. Yeah, and I want to add to that's This is a huge challenge. I think um, I think of, we think about this a lot because, you know, if you see how cities and countries are evolving, you know, going back to this interconnected type of model, um, you see sort of a dissipation of family nuclei, right, around uh, in different countries where, you know, I grew up in Peru, and it's very common for, you know, grow up in a city, then you stay there, you study there. In fact, I mean, still in, in many, many people in Lima, they don't leave their house until they marry, you know? Um, so it means that you're, you can hang out there for a long time, but that's changing because people like myself, I, I left not only my country, but not only my city, but my country, right? And I left my parents behind. And that's happening more and more, I think, throughout the world. And here in San Francisco, I think we all see this a lot. You know, we see a lot of patients that are elder and alone, uh, elder and, and disconnected from family. You know, families maybe within the state, but they're not seeing them. Um, and that adds incredible uh, burden and, and, you know, from a provider perspective, all kinds of worries. Um, and then you say, okay, but how about hiring someone, right? I, I recently uh, was uh, helping a couple she is paying $8,000 a month for a caregiver in Marin to come every day to help with her husband because she is also elder and, and frail herself, and she cannot really, like, help this, her husband ambulate or, you know, so she needs constant uh, help. So that's a ballpark figure, right? And then, um, you know, the cost of, like, having a loved one go into a nursing home uh, is astronomical, too. Like, you just, $12,000 a month, um, right? The range would be, what, four? Four, four to 12, depending on the quality. That's the, the other part of this, that there's no standardized sort of um, care around this. Yes, sir. question about the slide from the front. projections of dementia in various uh, countries around the world. The numbers for Australia seem like incredibly small compared to the other ones. Do you have an explanation for that? In Aboriginals, though. So. Yeah. Yeah. Population. Yes, that that was not a a national figure. And I yeah. think that opens up a lot of methodologic concerns. I think in terms of uh, appropriate techniques for detecting, this is always. Yes. Um, 
So indigenous populations generally suffer history of racial injustices and and um, traumas and their, their their cultural and language differences. And at the 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 up the at the outset of this, um, a lot of these um, Anna spoke about um, the standardization tools to assess who has dementia and who doesn't. Culturally, they're different from even doing it in San Francisco versus taking it to Jamaica, where, yes, we do speak English, but it probably won't know what a hippopotamus is um, if they see a picture. So it's finding tools. So it's very hard to determine the prevalence of dementia in a lot of these indigenous populations because of cultural differences, language differences, and just also sometimes these persons are untrusting of Westerners and what are you doing with me in my country? Mm -hmm. So um, these are all estimates and as you can see in indigenous populations the prevalence of dementia is as low as 0.5% which is probably impossible to as high as 20%. It's, it's such a large range we just don't know again because we don't have tools that will cater to all these different cultural differences. Yes, question here in the front. Yeah, I'm wondering if you looked at um, the element of sexism in, in some of the policy changes that you're trying to make. And I may be wrong here, but I'm thinking that many of the policymakers are male, and the effects for caregiving and women having dementia more frequently or living longer and then getting it. Have you looked at how sexism is affecting what you're trying to accomplish, which is really policy change? Great question. Anybody want to? Oh, the question is um, how, if we've thought of how sexism may be influencing policy changes around dementia throughout the world? Um, I don't know about the world. I would say that, um, so there's no doubt that the burden of this falls harder on women in both regards, that more women get dementia, probably care for somebody with serious chronic illness and or dementia, and then get it themselves. Um, that, and then the burden of caregiving falls more on women. And so it, it's, a clear, it's clearly related to lower income later in life and poverty later in life for women is a caregiving responsibility, usually twice. So usually less workforce engagement, formal workforce engagement because of a child uh, caregiving scenario and later other family caregiving scenarios. So it's extremely relevant to the question. I think um, I, I frankly haven't thought of it through that lens. What I was going to say is actually ageism is a big problem that we have. So we, we often look away from these policies and these issues precisely because of sort of internalized ageism and societal ageism around these issues and sort of a, if I don't look at it, I don't have to think about it phenomenon. And one of the most startling figures I saw recently was there is, I don't even know what it really is, an anti-aging medical society of some sort. And I belong to the American Geriatric Society, which is medical people who do uh, clinical medicine for older people. And we have about 6,000 members. They have 26,000 members. So wow. 
once we get to an even ratio, I'll feel a little bit better about the state of ageism in our country. But I think it's just a general phenomenon of not wanting to look at this issue, whether it's because of a, it's a woman's issue or because it's a older adult issue. Um, yeah, but I think it's a really important question, and I promise to look at that after this evening. And I don't know about more globally. That, yeah. you've, you've touched on this conceptual issue that is just so prevalent, right? Like uh, only a few societies, I think, have really um, confronted this issue of aging and everything that comes with it, like head on, I feel. I, I don't know the data around this, but this is my subjective feeling. But for the most part, and I think this is true of Peru as well and many Latin American countries, it's sort of like these issues are just bundled up as part of like retirement or, you know, um, old age and the minutia is just not looked at, you know, it's just like you got to figure it out as a family, as an individual, not my problem is what most governments and societies say and that's problematic. You had some comments. I, I'm not sure of the statistics now, but um, I'm very hopeful for the future because this Atlantic Fellowship has so many remarkable women in leadership positions, and they are preparing us to go to our countries and put us, give us a seat at that table so that we will be able to influence future policy decisions. Um, so I'm hoping that 10 years from now, women will play a more active role at the, the higher levels due to at the Atlantic Fellowship at the very least. And 80% of these emerging leaders are women. Yeah, that's great. That's an accomplishment. Yes, question here in the back. We have time for a few more questions. Just a quick question on practicalities. You had uh, six uh, wonderful presentations over six weeks. You have an extraordinary comedian coming in for your seventh week. I'm asking, with these two technology-inspired gentlemen behind us with their cameras, uh, madly photographing all of this. Where can we find this? Where can we go to see, for instance, I missed last week's lecture. Uh, I'd like to watch it. Where yeah. can we go to, to Right, so, so all of these lectures are being recorded, and they're going to be uploaded into the UCTV website, is what I'm told. So you'll be able to watch them as many times as you wish. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, I was... Uh, it, this is actually two things. Uh, first off, I'm wondering if there are epidemiologic studies that have been done that, that might suggest that people, that caregivers actually are preventing Alzheimer's hmm. from occurring. In, in, them, in themselves, you mean, or in a, yeah, because of no. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if anybody wants to take that question, but it's quite the opposite. Caregivers, uh, unfortunately, are at higher risk of developing cognitive decline themselves, even, when, even if they start off being very healthy. And in, in other words, the, the role, the burden of being a caregiver, and we've shown this in our work, um, poses a, a risk for dementia later in life. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then secondly, I was just... Uh, Curious about the the brain or the the group the brain the Global Brain Health Institute. Are you just looking at um, Alzheimer's disease or are there other? I, I know you had mentioned TBI, mm -hmm. and it, is that is that do you have data on TBI for example? 
So the question is, does GBHI look only at Alzheimer's disease, or is it a more, a bro, a more broad uh, scope? Maybe you can answer yeah, that. No, it's much more broad than that. It's a brain health protection strategy, and so TBI, um, Lingani is uh, you know, working on a, a TBI intervention in Botswana because people who get traumatic brain injury, um, if they do not get cognitive rehabilitation, are at a very high risk for dementia. So if you can just introduce cognitive rehabilitation to people who have had traumatic brain injury, you can have a large impact. Uh, a doctor in Mexico, Geronimo, uh, is looking at stroke. You know, can you prevent stroke as a brain protection strategy? Elisa Razende from Brazil is looking at late-life literacy training to see if you can train late-life literacy to prevent all types of dementia. We have many people studying... Uh, palliative care and dementia, in fact. Can you, can you help people uh, access services uh, when they have dementia? Right now, if you have a dementia diagnosis, the likelihood that somebody is thinking about your quality of life in a very uh, systematic way is not very good. And if you go as far to um, the idea of hospice, which is a benefit in the United States in the last six months of life, the uh, people with dementia almost never access that benefit because you know the laws require that somebody certify they have six months left to live, which is very difficult to certify when you have a dementia diagnosis. So there's a very broad range of what we're trying to do um, to help people with dementias of all different types, but also to prevent dementias um, of all different types. Has anybody I'm sure it makes caregiving a lot easier to have a society that is thinking of elders. So, so much research has come out of those countries, and unfortunately I can't speak to them in specifics, but some of the best studies, um, particularly around prevention, have come out of those countries. Not only do they have systematic resources, but they have systematic data collection. So it's quite easy to understand the prevalence of disease, interventions for disease, and um, so there's a lot. Unfortunately, I can't speak to the specifics. Maybe somebody here knows the, the data better than I Yes, question in the back. So you talked about a variety of vulnerable populations, but I didn't hear any talk about individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, which is a tremendously vulnerable population. Yeah. I spent the weekend reading a pilot on that and trying to provide feedback for one of our fellows who's in Ireland who studies Down syndrome. You know, people with Down syndrome have a 100% likelihood of developing dementia by the age of 60. I'm learning a lot of these statistics by reading her application and, and really the challenge and also the challenge of accessing therapies, accessing diagnosis. Uh, intellectual disabilities creates an entirely... A new set of challenges around how you identify change in, in somebody's uh, cognition, many times relying heavily on behaviors. Um, people with Down syndrome don't have access to clinical trials. Um, there are a lot of barriers. Uh, so, yes, we, we agree this is a, a population, and we have, um, of our 85 fellows, I, I'm thinking two fellows are specifically looking at intellectual disabilities, one in, in Barcelona and one in, in, in Dublin. Yeah. Any yeah. other thoughts? 
We've had some patients who it's been sort of unclear what their baseline is. In fact, one of the questions is, does this person have a developmental, have they had it their whole life? It's sort of haunting them in their chart. So somebody puts it in there and now they're in their 60s and, you know, it's just one of these um, also uh, a testament to how bad our medical records are really. Um, but so people who have not had an intellectual or developmental disability and not gotten great care over their lifetime either, we've had some challenges with that. But the, really the question for us becomes what's their baseline, who can help us figure out how well they were doing at some point, and then um, where are they now compared to that. And um, one of the things I've really learned as well is the vulnerability of those folks so we already know that people with dementia are way more likely to be exploited or subject to elder abuse. And um, in this case, uh, a case of a woman I saw today, in fact, um, you know, she's in a really tough situation because she's been dependent on other people for her legal st stuff and financial stuff her whole life. And that's been something that um, the person who she's been relying on has really sort of dropped out of the picture. And so there's almost legal complexities that are, are on top of all this that we weren't really prepared for. So I think also with the growing incidence of some intellectual disabilities and, you know, um, I may be off on the standard terminology now, but nor neuro, atypical neurodevelopment, um, like autism and spectrum disorders, I think it's going to be a bigger issue in terms of a more comprehensive strategy. It's, so it's a great question. It's very real. It actually comes up all the time. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.